hello, Jay Gajpari, and welcome to This Is BAME, a podcast with Foran about the lived experiences of Black and minority ethnic women and girls. Today, I'm speaking to the first Afghan to be elected into public office in the UK, Paymana Assad. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi, thanks for having me on, Jaya. Um, so my name is Paymana. Um, I'm currently a elected councillor in Harrow. Um, I represent South Harrow um, on the council and I sit on various different committees and one of the biggest things that we're doing right now in Harrow is trying to handle the COVID-19 pandemic Um, and so one of the big things that I've been working on is making sure that we have communications out to our ethnic minority communities in terms of trying to bust the myths of um, COVID-19 but also push vaccination so making sure that we get our communities vaccinated but also making sure that we hear more about how COVID has impacted um, ethnic minority communities the most because they're on the front lines um, every day fighting this virus so that's pretty much what I've been up to the past year. Um, We've heard quite a fair bit in the news not only are uh, black and minority ethnic communities affected Uh, at a far greater rate um, in terms of contracting the virus and then the impact of the virus. So uh, the the mortality rates are higher amongst these communities. But also there's there's another added uh, dimension to this, which is that it is the black and minority ethnic communities that are working in frontline jobs. And so they are at risk of contracting the virus. What are the the strategies to myth busting and to getting more people in these communities to take the vaccine because i've heard um you know the recent strategy is to to go door to door yeah so i think um obviously there's been much said about why um black and ethnic minority communities are impacted about the uh, impacted by the by the virus the most and as you've rightly said because they are on the front lines um but the other thing is it's inequality already so you know these communities are most impacted by racial discrimination but also economic inequality in the in our country so that's one of the reasons why they've been so impacted by this it's not just about genetics or about you know having other illnesses or underlying conditions it's about being on the front line and also the inequality qualities living in crowded housing all of that all of that other stuff and and one of the ways you know we've tried to um, bust these myths around COVID um, is you know something that hadn't been thought about before but is now very much out there not only on a national scale but on a local scale is getting communication out in in mother tongues and languages of, of our communities you know that's a big big way now that not only local councils but government has started to think about this differently so printing NHS leaflets and actual government guidance in different languages from Punjabi to Hindi to Urdu to Somali to uh, you know, Afghan languages, Pashto and Dari, all of this kind of stuff. And that's been one of the ways that Harrow Council has also tried to bust these myths. Um, so the government has been able to give us some funding to try and do that. And so we've opened up a, you know, a COVID fund uh, to try and fund people within the community that are already working within these different ethnic minority communities to come forward so that we can actually give them. These grants are very small, 500 pounds to, you know, a thousand. They're not that much but they do enough to create a video that that you know our aunties can share on whatsapp or you know all of that kind of stuff or share on facebook um, to try and bust these myths and then on the vaccine side obviously that's the same way so doing that kind of communication and getting those messages out um, but showing people that actually it reduces the rate of infection in the population if you do get vaccinated. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the door-to-door testing and, and surge testing. It's actually now started in Harrow. And the reason for that is because of the different variants that have been active in the population in specific areas across Harrow. Um, and that's not for us to be worried. It's just for them to find out where that kind of variant actually exists across Harrow um, and to try and not to contain it. Uh, in a way so that door-to-door testing is happening because of that reason so that South African variant and all the other variants have been seen to be present in 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 Harrow specifically so that's why that's happening but in terms of vaccination it's mainly done through you know getting a call or a text from your GP or the NHS to go and get vaccinated and for those of you who are not from London or even England uh, Harrow is a 
an area in um, Greater London and it's uh, northwest of Greater London, just so you've got some geography there. Hey, Mana, let's talk about kind of where you've come from and what your journey's been, you know, your formative years. You've arrived from Afghanistan as a child refugee at the age of three. I came to the UK as a child refugee uh, from Afghanistan. My mum arrived at London Heathrow, pregnant with three little kids by her side wearing just the clothes she had on and nothing else she didn't have any other property or anything else with her um, and we came to the UK because there was an ongoing war uh, in Afghanistan a, a civil war um, from the fallout from the Soviet occupation so the Soviets withdrew and then um, Afghanistan spiraled into to conflict and and my parents did not feel that there was any future um, for them there. I mean, they tried. Um, we lived in uh, internally, internally displaced people's camps um, in Afghanistan, Eastern Afghanistan for a while. Um, and then I think my, my mom realized that, that this wasn't gonna end and this was just gonna continue. And that was no future for her kids. And she was very, very adamant that we, she wanted us to get an education. <clears throat> and so one of the things, and, and so she had heard about this place called Harrow. <laughs> um, from friends back in the day when they had studied in London and they had told her that this place is really nice it's very quiet the people are very nice you know they have nice colleges and all of that kind of stuff and so she had just remembered it but she had remembered it as an Afghan name which is Harun so she had remembered it like that and so when she came to the UK and back then when you arrive they ask you where do you want to live that doesn't happen now but but back then it did um, and so she said to the immigration officer, I'd like to live in this place called Haroon in London. And then he said, mm, Haroon. And so he looked up the list of London boroughs and he said, oh, Harrow. OK, you want to go to Harrow? We'll send you to Harrow. That's fine. And so um, they sent her to Harrow, um, uh, which is where I grew up um, and I went to school. Um, I also stayed at home for university. So I went to Brunel and I studied international relations. Um, and then went on to study my master's at King's College in London uh, in conflict security and development. And that's really where my whole journey really into politics and everything else really started. Why that master's programme, number one? And, and what did you hope to get out of it? And what did you get out of it? So when I finished my undergrad, I knew I wanted to do a master's um, and I had applied to different schools. And this one really spoke to me because it was on conflict resolution, um, having come from a background that was impacted by conflict and war. Um, and then, you know, development and security and, and how to achieve that. So I wanted to learn how do we bring societies out from those kinds of conflict situations into more secure and developed um, nations. And so that's what really, you know, that's why I applied to that program and did it. But the, the main goal was, OK, I'm going to learn about the root causes of all of this and then go away and work, actually go and work in these refugee camps across the world um, with the actual people impacted by this. Um, so I really wanted to become an aid worker um, going out there and, and being there. Um, but those reasons that didn't happen <laughs> um, uh, after studying for, for my master's, I had I had so much time within that one year to actually read. Um, so I read so much about so many different things. And I think I became a little bit depressed because of the reality of what the world is like. And when you read, you, you, you know, they say knowledge is power, but actually sometimes I think ignorance is bliss at some, some points, you know, um, because you, you don't really realize how bad the world is. Um, and, I, and I realized, okay, I really do need to get out there and, and go. And so I found a job in Kabul uh, with an NGO working with unemployed young people. Um, and so I was going to go to Afghanistan and live there, but there was one specific moment in a conversation with my mum who I told, okay, so I'm going to go and live in Afghanistan. And she flipped. She, she, she started crying and, you know, she just threw this whole tantrum at me and said, you know, I pulled you out of that fire. Now you're going to go back into it. Um, why would you do that? And I didn't want this. I don't want that kind of life for you. And it's all of this kind of stuff. And then, I saw the, the emotional reaction she had and it just made me feel like maybe this isn't the right thing 
of that I'm doing for my family. And so I decided to stay in the UK. Um, and I refused to find a job for six months. I, I moped around and <laughs> was, you know, doing volunteering here and there. And I thought, okay, well, let me just put my, my skills to use, my language skills to use. So I went and worked um, uh, at this charity on a voluntary basis with single mothers. So they were helping single moms get uh, access to local government services from housing to benefits and all of that on other stuff. And there was this one particular case, um, you know, this lady came in, she was pregnant, she had kids, she didn't speak a word of English. And I was trying to help her and the council was refusing to help her. Um, and I took her to the council and, you know, the council refused to give her housing and she was about to become homeless. And that situation just angered me so much. I was like, we live in one of the most richest countries in the world. And here is a, a person who's destitute, about to become very destitute, who's pregnant, who needs help. And people are refusing her help. And I thought that shouldn't be happening in this country, you know? I thought I was needed abroad for, for helping those kinds of people, not in the UK. Um, and that kind of made me so angry and I decided that I would, you know, go into politics and, and try and do something and to try and change it because I just didn't think that situation was was acceptable. And I didn't I didn't accept that someone like, like, you know, in the end, I went out of my way to try and help this person and try and get them housing and, you know, put my own money towards it. But I thought that shouldn't be the case. The government should be stepping in to support these people because it shouldn't be down to volunteers or individuals like me to do that kind of work right um to get people back on back on a step where they can help themselves and so that's where really it sort of started the the, the political journey um and, and the anger it sounds like that was the beginning of you becoming this activist i feel that in politics going into politics if you're an activist, your political career is far more meaningful. The people that actually are doing it from a point of lived experience. Yeah. And it sounds as though that, you know, your journey into higher education and selecting that specific master's pr program was very much informed by your personal and your family lived experiences. And you almost kind of did a full circle where you have built up your life and now you're in a you're, you're in the position to give something back to those who are in a similar position to you once upon a time yeah it, I do I, I do I I think that it comes down to the fact that you know through throughout university nobody had ever told me that that I could become an activist or I could get involved in politics and it was never I didn't have a family base either around it it was me realizing that there's something inherently wrong in society you know that the okay I was one person that went through it but why are there so many other people in my community that are facing this and so you know not having that kind of background and going into it is a completely different experience to having you know that political base or that family background or being a careerist as you say um, because that wasn't even in my mind you know when we don't see ourselves in people that look like us we don't imagine or we don't give ourselves there is no opportunity to reimagine what we could be and what we can do and and I think that is such an important um, point that you've raised there that a university is a place yes to learn but it's also a place to explore your own potential you've come into activism but then you go on to lead quite a few successful campaigns yeah, so I don't. I didn't realize that's what it's called then. That it's <laughs> activism. <laughs> um, it was just I thought we're trying to create change in our community, you know, um, from local campaigns to more national ones. Um, so you know, the local ones were about like you know fighting to keep Northwick Park A and E open. At that point, the Conservatives were thinking of closing down the the accident and emergency at Northwick Park, and so we ran a huge campaign, um, local petition with local trade unions as well as um, health workers um, to, to keep that A&E open and it was successful um, but that was months and months of being out there in the cold in the uh, summers 
uh, campaigning, um, getting people to sign petitions and meeting with with uh, more senior stakeholders in government or members of parliament to try and lobby them. Um, those are things that I never imagined that I would be doing, but but it was something that I know that my community needed. Um, so, you know, that was one of the local ones. And then there were other things like they were trying to close down South Harrow Police Station. And we knew that, you know, not having a holding cell in South Harrow Police Station for people who had been caught on, on crimes was going to be a huge thing. Um, but also not having a place where police people could actually stay and then, you know, come out if they were called by, by local residents for like robberies or whatever it was. And so we campaigned to keep that open. Um, and it was very much fighting against the cuts. It, it was all, the, the campaigning locally was focused mainly on standing up against conservative government cuts because the austerity agenda at that point was really high. Uh, it was at the height of the, like the 2010s, right? Forward from the 2010s. Um, and that was where my local activism was, was focused. But the other aspect of, of it was really based on girls and women's rights, right? Um, because I came from a, I come from a background where women and girls in Afghanistan especially are impacted by conflict in ways that that men aren't um, but also many women and girls from that background are stopped from even obtaining an education and I thought well I need to do something with the education I've obtained um, and to try and give back and so my campaigning um, and activism within the NGO sector based on girls rights um, came down to not just UK campaigns but global campaigns um, so working across different NGOs um, one of the campaigns that I ran was against um, getting the home office to recognize street harassment as a form of gender-based violence because what we realized was that whilst the home office recognized gender-based violence there were different aspects of that that they hadn't and one of those was street harassment, being catcalled, being groped, being followed, all of that kind of stuff. And so we ran a UK-wide campaign um, with young girls at the front and centre of the campaign um, to get the Home Office, home office um, to recognise it. And in their review of the violence against women and girls strategy, in the end, they did recognise um, street harassment as a form of gender-based violence. So that was sort of like a, a national UK campaign that, that, I, that I helped run um, that was successful. Um, and then across the globe, um, also focused on girls and women. Um, one of the ones that I'm very proud of is the campaign we ran in Uganda that I helped run in Uganda. It was on getting an inquiry by the Ugandan government into sexual slavery or um, in the service industry, um, specifically targeted at young girls who were serving in the service industry and being sexually abused and harassed um, by their male bosses. Um, and then in the end, um, we were successful enough that the Ugandan government agreed to open an inquiry into the issue. So just getting them to acknowledge the problem, you know, that was a big success because before they hadn't acknowledged it. So not just in the UK, but across the globe, um, not just locally in Harrow, but uh, across uh, London. Um, those are the types of, of campaigns I, I was um, part of and, and interested and in, mainly focused on poverty inequality and, and girls education um, girls rights and, and girls education um, which was which was a big big thing for me um, which I felt like I, would, I had to give back you know and use my education and my experiences to try and push that it's really interesting because you know currently um, I mean we're recording this uh, episode on the 16th of March and of course there's been a massive uproar with the disappearance, kidnapping, and then murder of Sarah Everard. This is not something new. We, we have revisited this conversation about public safety um, for women and girls, and often historically, and also culturally, it's been the responsibility of women and girls to keep themselves safe. Whereas, you know, we're not putting out campaigns that are saying, men do not molest her, men, do not rape. Mm. Instead, what we have is things like on the London Underground, women, keep your things safe or hold your bag close or, you know, yeah. stuff like that. The way in which we are framing this, I think mm. we're all asking very big questions right now and demanding um, change. So your passion for and your sense of responsibility for gender equality and to mm. create a better society armed with the confidence 
and the vision to see that society can be better. Your career in the NGO charity sector uh, and campaigning, did all of this prepare you to go into politics and to start your political career, which is your second career in your very young life? <laughs> it's so interesting because I think it came side by side, right? The, the, the NGO stuff as well as the, the campaigning and, and going out there and, and um, trying to help the local community. Um, I had in that time where I was figuring out what I should be doing with with my time after my master's I was doing the voluntary work um, but also looking for a full-time job um, in the NGO sector and yes I think it definitely did prepare me for politics in a way that that many people think that activism doesn't because the barriers, the, the difficulties that you come up against in campaigns prepares you for, for the actual struggles in, inside the system when, when you're in there, right? Um, and running those kinds of campaigns is also what politicians should be doing, you know, standing by the community, um, for the community, with them and, and listening to their concerns. That's what activists do every day um, to try and bring people together and push through change. Um, and some politicians just want to shut their ears and not listen. Um, but but the, for me, you know, after running those local campaigns, I decided that this is only going to change if I actually have a seat at the table, right? So, so I need to be there to change those housing policies. So the next time a pregnant woman walks in to another volunteer in another charity, in another charity they can actually get help from the council. Um, and which is why I decided to run in 2014 in the local elections um, and actually put my name forward. Um, and that was hard in itself, you know, turning up to my first political party meeting and being being the only female there, um, surrounded by men over the age of 60, all white. There's no one that looks like you. There's not even the same gender as you. Yeah, right I was going to say, like, you know? that you're the only woman, but also you're the only one that is a minority as well. Yeah. So, like, where are you? You can't exactly. see yourself anywhere. The kinds of questions you're asked and, you know, and the excitement in which they, they come to you as well. Like, oh, we've got something different, you know, coming to us. So we should try and hold on to this person. But then also when you want to climb up the ladder in politics, the barriers, they, those same people put in front of you to try and stop you from getting there. So, And that's yes. confusing, isn't it? Because yeah. on one hand, you've got allies, but those allies are also preventing you yeah. from, you know, doing better than them, perhaps, you know, and progressing in your career. I think it comes down to this aspect that, that women of colour, ethnic minority women should be controlled that that we should always be listening and be following orders of others and that we don't have our own thoughts or that we shouldn't be you know using our own brains and having our own opinions that is culturally like you said very widespread and that doesn't just relate to men of other men of color but men generally um, and it's this idea of being silenced, right? Like consistently being <clears throat> silenced. And with silencing, the tactics are um, fear mongering. So for instance, you're in a job, you don't want to rock the boat, you don't want to ask for emotion, you don't want to say if something um, has happened to you in the workplace that shouldn't have happened in case, you know, there's a vulnerability around that, right? That, so it's the silencing and the vulnerability around perhaps speaking up. And it's not imagined, is it? No. We pick these messages up. And the, the really toxic thing about this is, is that so many times it's hard to even pinpoint, to articulate. You feel it, though. Your body feels it. It's so under the ground in the UK, you know, where in other countries, especially in the United States, for example, people, it's so in your face. You can just straight away know. In the UK, it's so subtle. It's, it's, you know, what they call those passive aggressive behaviors. Um, but you just feel it. You feel it from the energy in the room. You feel it from the backhanded compliments or the backhanded comments from people. You know, by the way, they look at you. Um, you know, by their little snide comments and things that they say. You just know that you're not welcome and that you should 
be silent basically absolutely and if you ever try to articulate that um, to somebody outside of you would be told oh no I think you're imagining it are you Um, sure about that (laughs) that's that's do you know I bet you there's so many women not just me and you that have probably been told that yeah you know because in my first ever job that's what I was told when I brought up the issue of yeah gender discrimination racial discrimination no 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 I just think you're imagining that I don't think that's real and it's got nothing to do with the fact that you're a woman or an ethnic minority it's because of your work yeah or it's because of and there's there's a number of reasons that they come up with and what happens then I mean I call this gaslighting actually Mm -hmm. what happens then is you go away and you're confused so in one sense you kind of know that that wasn't right yeah. And what you felt was authentic and real mm. and you picked up all the cues, you know what that meant. But then when you get told that, you then end up doing this whole toxic thing of questioning your own lived experience. Was it real? Was, was it real? Am I imagining it? it? Yes. Shall I think about this in a different way? Maybe yes. they're right. Yes. You know, you you question yourself. Right. And you think, right, is is did that really happen? Maybe, okay, maybe. And then you kind of second guess and you start to believe what they're saying. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And that's where the danger falls because you're, you're kidding yourself, but you know in your gut that it's not right. Absolutely. And the fallout from that is you lose out, essentially, in, mm. in so many different ways. It could be if we're talking about uh, progressing in your career in a particular sector, you know, you could have lost through those experiences 10 years in progressing. And when I say progressing, it's not about climbing the ladder, so to speak. It's about developing your skills and and doing really good work to create change whatever that change might be right it's about contributing and making a valuable contribution I agree and I think but the why is really important because if it impacts your mental health then you're not able to concentrate on your work you're not able to push forward you're not able to be present in meetings you're not able to you know because you're focusing on trying to survive day in day out absolutely not only are you surviving but in that meeting the information that's coming at you is one thing and you're also emotionally reading the room yeah you're you're looking for cues or not even looking for them but you're you're trying to decode Mm. the coded yeah and And that that mental pain yeah that mental pain not everyone can survive that no no that, Absolutely. That is that is the difference between, you know, someone who beco- who comes out of this on the other side successful. Yeah. And someone who just says, "Forget this. I'm yeah. quitting and I'm walking away." Yeah. Absolutely. Since um, you know April May, all the kind of conversation that has unravelled the activism, the anger from the Black Lives Matter movement. One thing that I hear now so loud and clearly is people in positions of power are holding tight to those positions of power. They talk about diversity, but for there to be diversity, they need to step aside. That is the thing that is not happening. No. So we need brave people to come forward and say, I'm going to step aside to make room for, right? Yeah. But that, that in itself is so difficult. Yeah, you know, because they think that they've been through difficulties that they've tried so hard to get to where they are. Why should they? Right. You know, why should they? That's the question that they're thinking. But there's also another thing about whether we as ethnic minorities, as black women, as um, women of color, actually belong in this place right oh gosh yes you've just opened up another can of worms around belonging (laughs) so whether we actually whether we're actually seen as as belonging in terms of the national identity and actually being here or whether we're you know whether these they see themselves as more like the the original people of this land rather than people who have come here when actually it's an island and we've all come here (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) it's an island and we've all come here so so technically you know we should all belong regardless absolutely yeah Um, it's it's very interesting that you talk about belonging because I myself have had um issues I think for, for the best part of my my life you know conscious life I'd say you know where um where do I belong I don't belong here 
I don't belong in India. I wasn't born in India, but my identity is Indian. I mm. definitely don't belong there because when I go there, I, I you know, I, I feel I don't belong. <laughs> um, and uh, the only place where the closest to belonging really that I've ever felt is London. And I'm not saying London's great and perfect by any means. I'm not saying that, gosh, does London as a city. Greater London has its issues. It really yeah. does. But there is a sense of, and it's a transient city, right? Mm. Um, but there are many of us that, you know, are here to stay. It's definitely about where you feel at home rather yeah. than where you actually, like where you, what your passport says that you're sure. from. Agree. Right? So <clears throat> if I spend months or days away from London and I come back, even if I'm like in a different city in the UK, I come back to London, I'm like, oh. I'm yes home. it's that breath isn't it it's yes, that, like oh, oh I'm just, the exhale thank, thank you god that I'm back <laughs> it's just you know it's a familiarity it's like knowing yes no it's knowing this place I know how to I know how to manage people here I know how to speak to them I know you know how much I can push how yes. much I need to retreat you know yes. I know all of that kind of stuff I know where how to speak up and what to say and all of that kind of stuff and yes. to fight and defend for myself right yeah I think it's a, it's a part of that but also you know um, the fact that we grew up in this city um yeah. and, and so our childhood memories are linked to to the places here so when we walk past the park okay that's the park where I learned how to ride a bike or you know that's where sure. I fell sure. off and you know or had my first <laughs> fight or you know all of that kind of stuff um so it's connected to your childhood memories too as much as as anything else I would describe you as a trailblazer I don't think it's been uh easy at all or a walk in the park as we've described some of our experiences you know, what you were articulating as a minority ethnic in politics, or whether that was in the NGO, with volunteering sector, whatever, we've experienced it. And in politics, it's particularly hard, because as you said, you've walked into a room, one of your first meetings, and you're not only one of one woman in amongst all of the men in the sea of men, but the only ethnic minority. What you've then gone on to do is to design a training and mentoring program to empower others like yourself to do the same. And I think what's really interesting about this, and this is trailblazing, because you have gone into an environment and then you've gone, actually, there needs to be more diversity here and I'm going to make that happen. I think that's really progressive. <laughs> yeah, so so that at that time, I didn't realise that this was going to be such a, such a, a game changer, especially in the borough across Harrow, right? Um, so there's me I stood in 2014 I lost the election by 300 votes but I hit the ground running right so I ran that campaign for for that seat in a way that life or death right so knocking on doors and, and convincing people to vote we came so close I came 300 300 200 votes within winning that seat and that's in a conservative considered stronghold right so I knew that there were people out there who thought like me and then after that, lots of people were saying, oh, she's going to go away. This is this is usually what happens with these ethnic minorities. They come in, they run one, they stand for office, they fail and then they leave. And I thought, well, no, that's not what I'm going to do because I'm actually here to create some change. So it's not about me winning the seat or not. And I went to a few council meetings. And I went to one council meeting and there were three, maybe over the age of 90 even, okay at this stage they were sleeping in that council meeting <laughs> they were asleep they were snoring listen okay. if I was 90 I'd be doing the same damn thing right <laughs> taking a nap <laughs> but I just sat there and I was in shock you know this is me I was in shock I was like wow so this is what power looks like at the top of the council <laughs> napping and they're sleeping in a council meeting <laughs> where, where we're discussing really important things for, for our borough and I thought and I looked around the room and I didn't see any young people I didn't see any young women I saw no people of color I was like right this needs to change and it's going to start with me and so I went out there and um, so I became the so the Labour Party chose me as the the chair of the local campaigns forum and that was just by luck and chance because like I said I was the only women woman around at that time 
So I was the only woman around. And so they thought, oh, let's just, you know, it was a symbolic tick box exercise. Let's just get her on there. Um, and then nobody wanted to be chair because it was quite a complicated role, role to do to try and run campaigns. So I said I'd take it up. And when I did it, I thought, right, this is my chance to create this training and mentoring program to encourage others across the borough to come in and get trained up on these skills. Because I realized that me being there was just by chance and luck because I had come done all my campaigning and my, my activism and then come into this. So I had used those skills and utilized it. But people from other professional backgrounds, whether they're teachers, whether they're an engineer or a doctor or whatever they're from, they probably never thought that they had the skills to, to run for, for public office, right? And they didn't think they had the connections or they knew the right people. And so I went about creating this program that side by side, training them up with these skills and you know doing the public speaking, learning how to run a campaign and, and writing public letters to the local paper and all of that kind of stuff was this mentoring aspect where a sitting local councillor would mentor them and teach them this is what a council meeting is this is what we discuss this is right. the formalities of it this is how it works you can even attend and ask a question or you you know you can this is how the public can take their role into the council without even being elected how does that help local councillors and so that relationship um, was formed from 25 participants of the, of the training program and we did this over a span of three months so this was in my voluntary capacity that I ran this for three months every Saturday morning for two to three hours um, and by the end of it we had more than 10 of them uh, stand to, to write to get selected for for seats in the 2018 um, general uh, local election sorry and five of them got elected wow um so that's like a fifth of participants my my maths is correct yeah yeah um and that included the labor's only black current sitting councillor um women under the age of 30 wow um and young men under the age of 30. So it was a, a, we changed the face of what the council looks like and we brought in a different type of culture into the council. Yes. So councillors who had been resistant to my program before, who had said to me, why are you running this? You're creating competition for us because we want to hold on to our seats. And I said, it's not about creating competition for you. It's about giving these people the skills and the ability to think that they can do it too, you know? Um, and then at the end, when they got elected and, and it started to change the culture within not only my party, but at the highest levels of the council, then they came back and said, you know what, Paymana, well done. Thank you for doing that. You brought in so many more young people. People actually feel they've got the skills, they can actually do this. And I was like, yeah. And I think the, the biggest thing for me was I got elected in 2018 too. So to see those same people that I helped train up and and you know help them develop their skills because they had the skills it's just about learning how to utilize those right skills right um to get elected on the same night that I got elected was just a totally different a collective yeah. victory yeah yeah definitely wow and you're running the program again yes so yeah. so the program is open currently for applications and the deadline is Friday so I, I'm already getting loads of interest from lots of different people, um, especially women, which is great and fantastic. So I'm looking forward to, to helping this new class of 2021. And how, um, many, and how many positions are open? So we hope about 25. Hopefully. Okay, so, Again, so the right. Because yeah. it, it's quite intense. So it's good to be able to do that kind of one-to-one -one and give them sure. a bit more. Um, rather than doing huge numbers of, of people but yeah and is this going to be something that you do year on year like what's the plan do you have an idea so I hope you know I'm in discussions of trying to make this a year on year um, plan trying to secure funding to make sure that we can expand it out so okay. um, not just those who are Labour Party members but people who haven't yet found their political home yet who are still sure. thinking about it you know yeah because I know that there's people out there who want to do good but just don't know where they fit or where they 
they feel like they belong. But I hope that that means they go towards more progressive thinking rather than conservative thinking. Sure. <laughs> that's, just, <laughs> that's just my personal bias. Yeah. So if there's anybody listening that thinks, oh, I would like to get onto this program, what should they do? They can write to me. Okay. Um, and I'll send them the application form okay. uh, online. Um, yeah. So my email address is public on the Harrow Council website. Just sure. type in my name. Yeah. Um, Paymon Asad and all my details come up. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Okay. I want to talk about Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> go for it tell me everything <laughs> so this was so strange and random because um so this is last year and about july june time i was um someone reached out to me and said you know you've been you've, you've come across our radar from the obama foundation um because of the campaigns that you've been running um you know to do with girls rights the ones that that i spoke to you about on this uh, just earlier um, you know, and you've really stood out and we hope that that you would be you would think about coming onto this um, the Leaders Europe program, but we don't know if you're interested. And so they invited me for an interview and I and I went along um, and then they they chose me as one of 35 emerging leaders across Europe um, uh, from from, you know, all these different countries and all these young people who would doing sort of the same thing that I'm doing in the UK, but across Europe. So from France, Germany, um, Kosovo, Albania, um, even Russia. So, you know, all of those different countries. Um, and they brought us together um, and talked to us about how we can utilize what we're doing on a bigger platform. So how do we do what, what I've done in the UK, European wide and how do we connect with each other mm -hmm. um, and so one of the projects um, that's come out of this is me working with a few other European leaders um, to try and raise the voices of young people because that's where most of my focus has been in supporting young people and uh, people of color not only to stand for public office but to gain skills like how to run uh, campaigns or running campaigns alongside them and, and giving them that that platform um, but we wanted to create a, a, an opportunity for young people to be heard by politicians and political leaders. Um, and so yesterday, uh, we hosted a roundtable with the Director for Human Rights and Civil Society at the White House, um, the new director under President Joe Biden. Um, he joined us and he listened to 17 to 20 uh, young people across Europe. Um, so these are like either high school age or college age or, or in, univers in university, working on issues to do with political activism or change or protest or all sorts of other things, specifically looking at tackling polarization um, mm. um, across Europe. Mm. Um, so not only did we have this director from the White House present, but we had Kat Smith, the UK um, Labour MP, um, and the shadow minister for, for young people present. Um, and we also had a former um, deputy national security advisor under President Obama present as well, um, as well as a member of the European Parliament uh, from Hungary. So we had a wide range of, of politicians present and, and they really listened to the young people. And, and this was in the spirit of the Obama Foundation and the program that I had been through. Um, and it really came comes back to when, um, you know, we met with President Obama in February. So at the end of this program, where we were exchanging ideas and initiatives and discussing these issues and trying to come up with these kinds of projects, like the one that we ran yesterday. Um, at the end of the program in February, we got to meet President Obama. And I was chosen as out of one of the 35 to share my story um, with him directly. And so, you know, telling him about this program that I ran, the training and mentoring program, and how I had to walk down my, in Harrow, the Civic Center, walking down this corridor. And there's the portraits of um, the old mayors of Harrow. Yeah. Um, the corridor is there. Anybody can go there, by the way. Anybody listening to this who's from Harrow. If you walk down this corridor and you look at these portraits, they're of all old white men. 
Yeah. There's no women there. There's no women of color. There's no black people. There's nothing. None of, right. none of that. And I told him this story. I told President Obama that you know, I was walking down this corridor and I just I kept looking at these portraits and thinking, how is this even possible that that power is going to continue to look like this? You know. Right. And and, so, and can I can I also just add that Harrow isn't it's quite a multicultural borough yeah, of London. Yes. So that those portraits are from like the 1970s 1980s 1990s coming up and then you and then when you go to a different corridor with the newest mayors the last 10 years maybe you've got more ethnic minorities there but that corridor just stands out to me because I'm like wow you know this was just was during a time of so much change in the United Kingdom you know of of Harrow is now one of the most diverse boroughs in the UK yeah religiously and ethnically yeah, yeah. um and I so thought, I thought at, Brent was actually the most multicultural no I think I think Harrow is the most religiously diverse oh right right and then right. Brent is Brent probably is, most yeah yeah multicultural because they also celebrate that quite nobody a bit. sees the borders right so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but politicians see the borders all that's the time that's true because so. by the way to anybody that doesn't know Brent and Harrow are basically like next door neighbors next door neighbors <laughs> right so it's they bleed into each other you know yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and so I was telling him about this story and about the mentoring program and you know he you know he one of the adv- the the advice that he gave um me was you know this isn't this kind of activism this kind of work that that you're doing it's it's long term you know it's a it's the long game you're playing the the long game not the 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 10 years or the five years this is a hundred years this is a game of a hundred years yeah yeah and that was amazing just to be able to sit down and talk to him and tell him um some of my experiences and to actually also have him pronounce my name correctly (laughs) um the first time I I definitely know how that feels (laughs) I mean not that Barack Obama's ever said my name but um just anybody generally that that isn't Indian (laughs) yeah and, and so that 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 was very motivating and then you know the Obama Foundation has done great with this program but he said you know he he feels he cares about our cohort of European leaders the most because he knows how intertwined the US and and Europe are in terms of not only culturally but also politically and how intertwined our politics is and so this entire experience has been you know motivating for me because sitting down with someone like President Obama and hearing him and hearing him speak to us and knowing how much of a responsibility he had as the first black president of the US um, and then to be sitting there as me the first Afghan you know in the UK it just it just felt amazing to be able to have that conversation and, and to sit there and to listen to him wow yeah mind-blowing yeah and I hope that you know we continue to um that I continue to work with the other the leaders that I've met yes, on the program yeah. um, to continue creating these platforms and and those conversations um, like the one that we had yesterday about polarization so sure yeah can we talk about marriage versus career <laughs> yes <laughs> taking yes. A, a, another turn here I think this is a this is really interesting because um, you know we've been talking about careers not only political but also in the the charity sector and wherever you are you don't really see people that look like us right at the top or or many of us at the top I think we see we see ourselves in organizations but it it often is assistant officer perhaps you know middle management but anything above that it's quite rare yeah exactly I mean it's changing but it's rare yeah Yeah. but I, I think maybe this might also relate to some of your experiences I don't know but when I was at university I I was seeing other young girls Asian girls uh, around me who were getting married straight out of university or getting engaged and then a year later there'd be there'd be a kid uh, in the mix of it yeah and I just I don't know there was something in my gut that told me that this is not what I want and this is something that I just want something more I don't sure. just want to, you know, sit. It's not. There's nothing bad with it, but I no, don't absolutely just, not. Yeah, no. it's not like saying one is better than the other. No, it, no, it's, but yeah. it's just not something that I wanted. I wanted sure. something. I I just wanted. I didn't want a normal life. I wanted something that was different. Right. Um, and 
to me getting married and having kids was not it it just wasn't it I just knew that that not only would that be mixing someone else's dreams and hopes and because you'll have to because you have to consider someone else and then you have to consider their family and you have to consider all of that responsibility and it changes so much and I saw people who had dreams of becoming lawyers not become lawyers sure. I, had, I saw people who had dreams of becoming teachers not become teachers and I thought I don't want to that's not going to happen to me sure. I didn't I didn't come here as a child refugee from Afghanistan running away from conflict seeing the hardship that my parents went through to then just sit at home and have kids and and raise them sure that's not what I'm going to do with my life um but the pressure to get married was huge yeah it's huge and when you talk about that and when we discussed it last time you know um how many women uh you know minority ethnic women in my personal circle of friends and family the pressure is so humongous it's crippling it affects your confidence you are essentially assessed by your marital status if you're married tick tick great you're doing the right things but if you're not it's almost like you're a deviant it's social deviancy there's something wrong with you absolutely there must be something wrong with you if you are not married yeah or you're very choosy <laughs> yeah you need to reduce your standards yeah That's what reduce, I've heard a lot yeah <laughs> reduce, reduce your standards you need to settle a little bit more yeah you know with, yeah. compromise yes compromise oh, that's God, it that, that that bloody word I think when I came out of university you know um you, I think in uh Asian culture we call it rishta but in in Afghan culture we call it khasgar so it's like the same thing someone comes to your house to ask for your hand in marriage right sure. and I had loads of those when I was younger um when I was like just about to graduate from university um but they were good they, they were good offers but I didn't there wasn't I wasn't interested I wasn't ready I didn't want to do it and the pressure was so much from family that I stopped going to family gatherings like yes. I stopped going to weddings I stopped going to parties I stopped going to all of these things because every time I entered there would be an auntie in the food line or an auntie at the table or you know someone saying to me so when are you going to get married and why aren't you married and oh you know so and so's son has just finished university and so so and you know we could set you up and what what kind of person are you interested in and I'm like I just don't want to hear this and it came to a point of what's wrong with you why aren't you getting married when are you going to get married and where's our invitation and all of this kind of stuff oh, and yeah. I just thought I just don't want to be I just don't even want to be there for that kind of questioning so sure. I just stopped going so you removed yourself essentially just from yeah I yeah. just stopped going and I think I think there's a couple of things here one is is that we as we as women and young girls growing up have obviously seen what having a family does to your career basically there are structural inequalities in the workplace that pushes out as women who are mothers for instance and then I think you know COVID-19 has brought and, and, and opened up this conversation about those inequalities they were always there women were always doing the caring responsibilities and trying to and trying to hold down a job whether it's part-time full-time whatever you know pursue a career and, and and that and that pull and that push and the guilt wrapped around and all that guilt was always there. But in lockdown, what we saw is the willingness to a certain degree to acknowledge and you know workplaces, some workplaces to to put measures in place, you know, to recognize those inequalities. So you've obviously somehow, you know, um, translated, what you saw as a young girl as if I get married, then I can only do that and then only have children and only become a mother. Mm. And that there is no opportunity to do that and have a career and pursue a career. And, and that's really sad and that does need to change, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other layer which we talked about was, um, I mean, I got married at, um, quote unquote, the right age, <laughs> you know, by my community standard. <laughs> 10 years previous to that was, you know, too old, by the way, but 10 years later, we had progressed a little bit. 
Um, (laughs) And then for me, it was a case of uh, being at these community events like weddings, etc. And then people eyeing me up. Am I pregnant or not? And being asked questions, sometimes very direct questions and sometimes kind of, you know, wrapped in um, that horrible word banter, which is, you know, no. you're eating lots of Indian sweets right now. Have you got some news to announce? Um, oh, my God. And, you know, uh, 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 the saddest one that I got uh, mm. was when I when I got a PhD scholarship, which is a which was an amazing achievement, I felt. And it somebody, is an amazing yeah. achievement. <laughs> Thank you. Um, somebody turned around and said to me, why are you doing that? Shouldn't you be having a baby instead? And so, I mean, these are just, the, these are people in your own community and family and saying things like that. I they feel they can. Yeah. You know, we can easily sit here and say as women, oh, you know, you just kind of let it go over your head. But this stuff hurts. I mean, this stuff isn't easy to listen to and be around. It pulls you back. It's emotionally challenging, um, energetically, you know, you could be doing other greater things. Yeah. But instead, you have to process these things, these comments consistently, right? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Thank you. That is the word. It is absolutely exhausting to have to constantly fight that and also do what you're doing you know doing your PhD continuing to do that but also hear this background noise this thing going on behind the scenes where you go to family parties or you know weddings and you hear this kind of comments I knew that if I was to get married at that age that the next question would be the baby question sure yeah because I had seen it I had seen it have and and that's why my friends were having babies so quickly because the mother-in-laws were like oh I want a grandchild or why you know all those questions and and those pressures um and I knew that 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 kind of pressure is very hard to fight it's not easy no it's not it's not it's not easy at all and so anybody who fights it you know salute to them because that is a hard job let's talk about lessons learned we really had a good chin wag over this idea of failure as a gift. Mm. Failure is a gift. And then one thing that you said to me, which hasn't come up in this conversation or this recording is, I think um, your mother was a genius and it was simple. She sent you to the library with your siblings and she said, read, 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 read whatever you can read. I don't care what you read, just read. Yes. I think I grew up in the library, if I'm going to be honest. uh, Every day after school, pretty much. um, So my mom enrolled us in basically every lesson, every extracurricular activity you could think of. She wanted us to be good Muslims, so she sent us to the mosque. She she wanted us to uh, learn to read and write our language, so she sent us to Iranian Saturday school on Saturdays. Um, And then she would take us to the library. Um, and she would take us to the library to take out books or to actually spend hours in the library just reading or going on the computer or doing whatever. Um, and so I spent pretty much my entire childhood in the library reading Harry Potter books, reading all sorts of you know books, but just reading, trying to catch up and to to that's where my love of reading started. Mm. And, and that's why I still read now. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the process of reading, um, I've also learned that people who are successful in life need to fail as well, which is yes. where the conversation of failure came in. Mm. Um, because I was reading these stories, you know, in in Harry Potter, how many times does Harry Potter fail in, in <laughs> you know, in doing things in the book, you know, in the series? So many times, but he doesn't give up. Um, and he still continues and it's the same with with so many other books and so many other stories you you read about failure and you don't realize it only when you look back at these books and these especially these childhood books um, that you realize that that is the lesson that you're being taught that that there is no such thing as failure really it's like you're you're trying it's tr- it's like it's trying to push you in a different direction right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's trying to teach you something different. And so um, I think failure and success go hand in hand mm-hmm. um, because it teaches you. So one of the biggest things that I've always tried to do, if I've ran a campaign unsuccessfully, if I've done something that's failed, 
I've always, okay, had a good cry, maybe, if I'm very upset about it, gone home and had a good cry. And then the next day thought, what did I do then that I could do differently tomorrow? And how do I learn from that? You know, so when I ran in the 20, 2014 um, local elections, I learned from that. I knew that I didn't just need six months. I needed a good year to run a campaign for, for election. Mm -hmm. And so in 2018, when I ran, I made sure that we had mm -hmm. a year to, to run campaigns and, and do it. Um, and now in 2019, when I ran in the general election as a parliamentary candidate, I know that being selected as a candidate in November with an election in December is not the way to go. <laughs> you know, but that was a snap general election and it was called uh, quite quickly. But I know that that is not how we get candidates um, elected into becoming MPs. And so I know that next time around, I need to push, make sure that my party push my party to to be selecting candidates way ahead of time yeah. so they have enough time to build um think um to to build um their community links um and their name that the biggest thing with failure is is um being able to give your, yourself time to mourn mm -hmm. you know um and and that that is okay like permission yeah. right yeah yeah like allow yourself to feel bad about it allow yourself yeah. to to feel sad about it but yeah. then think life has to go on I have sure. to get up again yeah. and I think that's the difference between people who succeed and people who give up and walk away sure it's whether you have the mental capacity to to get back up again the next day and and go out and do the same thing but a little bit different yeah to try and get a different result um a more successful result and I think that's the difference between people who see failure as so bad and um, between people who see see failure as a, a wonderful teacher basically how do you do self-care <laughs> this is my signature final question and I think it's a really important question because we touched upon mental health we touched mm. upon um, the fact that sometimes things get really hard um, you know even the last point that we made around failure we have to take care of ourselves so that we can then continue doing the work that we um, want to do. I think self-care is um, an ongoing process. You you learn over time how to take better care of yourself the more that you get. I think most people don't realize that that is actually a part of your activism. That's part oh, of your... I love that. That is, yes, that is so true and beautifully articulated. It, it's part of, of the work that you do. Um, and it goes side by side, because if you don't look after yourself, you can't do the work that you're doing, the activism that you're doing. Um, and looking after yourself is doing the movement or the campaign, something good. I love that. So, so you, you need, you know, you need to take time out. I'll give you an example, you know, mm -hmm. during this, that street harassment campaign, mm -hmm. that was one of the most relentless campaigns I've ever run. Mm -hmm. I was running up and down the UK from Liverpool to Wales to all sorts of different places in the UK to try and drum up support for this, right? And I was exhausted physically, but also mentally, because not only did it require me building coalitions between NGOs, but it required me building coalitions between young people between stakeholders between people who held public office and were very powerful and also it was the relentless questions of but why this why do we need it and I thought during those six months that I ran this campaign it was about taking a day one day in a week where I just went out for a walk or watched a movie that I that I liked, or I had a bit of a lion in the morning, or made myself some nice breakfast, something that I actually liked. You know, the little, little things that I you enjoy. You. Yes, I agree with you. That is all about, that's self-care. That is self-care, absolutely. Just finding a, something small that you can actually be excited and happy about and enjoy it. Absolutely. Because because that people think, oh, you need to do extravagant big things. No, it's but not no. that. No, it's not that. You know, one of the things that I did at the start of 20, 2020, I, I forget what year we we're in. Um <laughs> 2021. Start, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> at the start of 2020, 
um, I did something with a coach that I was working with. And this is after, I think, a couple of sessions of talking about self-care, but nothing really changing. Part of my one of my homework for that week was to write down a list of self-care where um, the easy self-care and the more kind of luxurious versions of self-care. What is it? What does self-care mean to me? So really defining it. And exactly what you said, you touched upon, it's small acts of self-care that are so impactful because you can slot them in to your day in a daily way. It doesn't have to wait till the end of the week where it's movie night on a Friday night at the end of the week or on a Sunday or whatever. It could be small things, but it's about defining what you like. But the other thing that I would also recommend is um, meditation. Yes. So wherever you are, just five, 10 minutes of silence, just clearing your head, thinking about nothing. Right. Um, And just centering yourself, right? I'm here. I'm grateful for everything that's happened to me. Um, And I'm grateful for what's going to happen to me tomorrow, you know? And and that just brings a different type of uh, calm uh, to me anyway um and I think that helps me because because I know that everything that I've been through every difficulty every challenge you know it's 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 about making me the person that I need to be for for future challenges yeah yeah um because that's it's all about building your character and being the person that you want to be in the end because the only people we should be competing with is ourselves oh god what a brilliant brilliant point Yes. The only thing we, yeah. So I think this, the competition thing is huge because, right, because most people feel this in whatever work they're doing. They're always up against someone else. You know, time's running out. I need to hit this deadline or I need to get to this um, career hit point by a certain age or whatever it is, right? Everyone wants to outdo the other person. But no, it's about outdoing yourself from yesterday. Yes. So... I want to do better than the Paymana I was three, four years ago, you know, yeah. uh, working smarter, um, more strategic, um, creating bigger change on a different yeah. level rather than doing. And then this was the other point that I probably didn't make, but I wanted to is throughout all of this, right? You start off with yourself. So whatever you do. So me, it was about me getting, um, into politics it was about me doing those campaigns me but at one point your ego just has to go away your the ego has to fall away because and when you think about it it's not about you it's about us it's about everyone it's about people um and so by helping yourself you're helping others um and so I think that's in the end what it comes down to but but the self-care is really important because it has to be part of part of your activism it can't just be something separate what I've heard you say today is it starts from you it goes into the local it goes into the national and then it goes into the global and I just I love I've loved everything that you've shared. I think you've you've offered so much to the listeners and to me also. So I can't thank you enough for for just being so open to be part of this, um, you know, podcast, which is in its infancy, to say the least. Uh, (laughs) I'm exploring and seeing what happens with it. And and you've you've, um, kindly come along the way on the journey as well. So I can't thank you enough. So thank you for listening to this episode of This Is BAME. And thank you to Paymana Assad. Please share and subscribe to This Is BAME wherever you find your podcast to automatically receive more episodes.